When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When she announced her move to end-of-life care in May, the cancer campaigner, Dame Deborah James, had one small request. I hope that anyone who's listened to the pod who has read one of my columns, read my book, or looked at my Instagram and stuff, or I suppose if they can afford to buy me a gin and tonic to send me on my way, and by doing so, hopefully we can raise some money for those charities. It led to thousands of people raising their glasses and millions being donated to her Bow Babe Fund for Cancer Charities. And as well as speed writing her second book, How to Live When You Could Be Dead, she was also praised by some high-profile supporters. Six million pound mark. Amazing. Incredible. We are joined now by Lauren Mann, who of course is Deborah's co-host on the podcast. The Prime Minister tweeting, if ever an honour was richly deserved, this is it. Deborah has been an inspiration and her honesty, warmth and courage has been a source of strength to so many people. But for someone who had known Deborah since her bowel cancer diagnosis in 2016, what was it like to speak to her in the final weeks before her death? I'd never interviewed someone that close to death or who knew they were that close to death and who wanted to do an interview about dying. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Deborah James, Lessons in How to Live When You're Facing Death. I'm Alice Thompson and I'm a columnist and interviewer on The Times. Who better to tell us more about Dame Deborah than Alice, who had the pleasure of interviewing her five times? I got sent a text out of the blue, just starting, I have a favour to ask. This is heartbreaking and I'm having the most horrendous week of my life. I've been given only a couple of weeks, most to live. But I trust you and I want to do one last interview to be published in my final days. Not really sure how to comprehend all this. I look like a ghost already. And that was from Deborah James. Actually, it makes me feel upset just reading it because... 
We chatted together over the last five years since she was first diagnosed with bowel cancer. And she's always been so remarkable and upbeat that it was the first time I'd heard real fear in one of her texts or one of our chats. To understand why Dame Deborah was such a formidable campaigner, we should go back to when Alice first met her. She was just 35 years old and she'd been diagnosed with stage 3 bowel cancer and uncowed by it, she was just taking her first steps into the public eye. She had two young children. She was a deputy head of a school. She was exhausted and frazzled and trying to balance childcare and washing up and cooking. But she had this incredible energy about her. And when she got this diagnosis, I think it would have floored anyone else because she really was very young and no one expects to get bowel cancer when they're that age. And yet she was already thinking, what can I do about this? How can I use it to help others? When you first met her, what were your impressions? For people who don't know her, what was she like? Always up for a laugh, loved to drink, but she was always in heels, great dress sense, phenomenal hair, really great hair. <laughs> the kind of hair you really envy that's just so thick and dark. And she had an amazing smile, very funny, always making jokes at her expense. But there was this pathos because I'd never met her without the diagnosis. So I hadn't known what she was like before. Mm. And there was always in the background the sense that she was a mother first and that that was her hardest conundrum is how to live and look after your children and your family while also knowing you're going to die quite soon. Tell us a bit about the podcast and how it had come about and, and how it ended up playing out to the country and, and the effect it had. Well, she started this podcast that was just deeply, deeply honest. Hello and welcome to You, Me and the Big C with Lauren Marne, a.k.a. Girl vs. Cancer, Deborah James, better known as Bowel Babe, and me, Rachel Bland, from Big C, Little Me. They were incredibly frank about how they felt, their fears, motherhood, Rachel had a son, and they would talk it through and discuss it. And I think it became very cathartic, not just for them, but for anyone who had cancer and for any families who had members who had cancer. Their award-winning podcast went on to be an important platform for Deborah, Rachel and Lauren to talk about everything, from mental health to financial advice, relationships to sex. By breaking taboos, they were able to make cancer diagnosis less scary and show that people living with cancer still have a sense of humour. I know I'm being quite graphic here. I'm just, I'm just thinking if there's yeah. a difference between with two balls versus one. <laughs> That's totally inappropriate, isn't it? I don't think we can even air that. <laughs> she called herself Bowel Babe, which was very brave because at the time there was still a real stigma about bowel cancer in a sort of prurient, embarrassed British way, I think. Mm. She really took that on and embraced it. And I think it was seen as an old man's disease very much. So the average person for me is 69 um, and 69-year-old <laughs> yeah. bloke. Yeah. Um, and I don't, You are not he. I yeah. am not he, exactly. So I think that's the problem when you don't fit the mould of your cancer. Yeah. And people then kind of go, well, you're too young. 
She wanted to prove that anyone could get it and that you had to be really vigilant and careful and that you did need to check your stools. And she was quite happy to talk about poo and toilets and the sort of messy issues surrounding bowel cancer. I have the poo cancer. (laughs) The glam cancer. I have the glam cancer. There's there's nothing pink about my cancer, it's just brown. Mm -hmm. So I'm 36 years old. Um, I was diagnosed um, just over a year ago after six months of a change of bowel habits, um, basically where I was was pooing blood. I remember all the subsequent interviews you wanted to get to that 40th birthday. And she'd always said she'd been a hypochondriac, so she was always worried she was going to get ill. And actually, she'd finally cured hypochondria when she did get ill. And I think that that must have been just devastating for her. I think she went to quite a few GPs because no one would believe you at that time that a young woman could get bowel cancer. Alongside the podcast, Deborah had also become a columnist for The Sun and she approached it with the same sense of fun and glamour. I remember one spectacular incident. She actually volunteered to be in her knickers for a photograph really just to impress on you that it was important to think about bowel cancer rather than just cancer. And she'd take these phenomenal photographs of herself when she was in hospital on a drip and she'd still be in white boots with a huge heel or, you know, a strappy top. And she was always wearing earrings. Even in the final interview, she'd put on earrings. She was always dressing immaculately as if she wanted to prove that she wasn't going to be ground down by this. But alongside the highs came the devastating lows, which anyone who's been impacted by cancer knows all too well. And one of those came just six months after the podcast had launched. Some really sad news um, about a colleague, a friend of ours here on the programme, Rachel Bland, announcing, you may know that she's had terminal cancer. Yesterday she tweeted, suddenly, I'm told I've only got days. It's very surreal. Thank you so much for all the support I've received. I'm afraid the time has come. I think that was really, really hard for Deborah because... She had to cope not only with her own sense of mortality, but also her close friend dying. And she said that's when she did have a real wobble. And I think it had brought them incredibly close together. Mm. And she did have a lot of friends who ended up dying because she met a lot of people who also had terminal cancer throughout her journey. Did it also affect her to see how Rachel Bland's family, for example, were grief-stricken after she died, knowing that obviously... Yes, and I think she felt very strongly that she wanted her children to be tough enough to cope. She kept saying she didn't want them to use her death as an excuse. She wanted them to be able to manage without her. And she writes this incredible acknowledgement to her children in her book when she says, you are my everything and I love you beyond comprehension. Know whatever happens, I'm with you. I'm at your side and I believe that you can do anything you want to do. I'm so proud of you. And all I ask for you in life is to make the most of every single day. That was the message she wanted them to take. She didn't want them to be devastated for too long. She wanted them to move on. She wanted them to embrace life. And I think she wanted everyone to do that. And I think Mm. that is what's happened to a certain extent. I think people in the country have felt 
motivated to go and do stuff. And and I certainly felt that interviewing her. I thought you do. There's no point in wallowing or being a victim. You've really got to go for it. And over the period when you were going to see her, there were moments where she thought she was in remission and then it seemed to be downhill again. Physically, there were changes, but in terms of how she'd grown into her new role as campaigner, how did she change in terms of her acceptance of what had happened? I think she remained remarkably similar. But I, she did become more confident in some ways talking to politicians. She would text Saji Javid, the health secretary. She <laughs> really? thought something was wrong. Um, she met a lot of extraordinary people and she would press on the importance of campaigning for bowel cancer. And she also had that other side. So some of our conversations were on Zoom and she would go back to her parents. And I think what I really thought is that she had this incredibly strong family. So she had this brother and sister she were very, very close to. And her parents were incredibly kind and concerned. Her mother was always going into hospital to go and visit her. And they had this lovely bungalow in Woking that always seemed to be sunny and gorgeous back garden and the children would be playing on the trampoline. There was one very funny moment when a bird was dying when we were doing a Zoom call. It was almost a metaphor and it was terrible. And the daughter kept saying, I don't want the bird to die, I don't want the bird to die. And actually we all ended up laughing in the end because it was so extraordinary. And they did everything they could. And actually they did then take this pigeon to the vet. Really? And it did survive. And I could see the daughter was just desperate for it to go right. And she was like, oh, yeah. See a miracle. Um, Yes, I think it was that. And I think she was much more down to earth and prosaic. And and I rather loved the fact that she'd be on a Zoom call and she'd be dressing up to go to the opera with her sister after another operation. She never had a bucket list. She had an obsession about not having a bucket list, although she had a to-die list at the end. But she didn't want to feel that she had to rush around the world ticking things off. I love the idea of a to-die list. <laughs> yes, that, that was to in do. the last interval. She, she did say that. She did like lists. And it was quite a long list. She got through the most astonishing amount of it. So she wanted to buy gifts for her daughter for various birthdays. And she wanted to get them from Tiffany. And she'd never wanted to have those memory boxes, but she did buy them at the end. She bought a pink one and a blue one. She wanted her son to have a wallet and a pen and things that he could have as he got older. And then she did want to write them letters, but she was too exhausted at the very end. So she said she didn't. She said she's done quite a lot of voicemail messages to them. She just wanted to make sure that they knew what she thought about first dates or what to do if they had children, how to cope in various situations, whether they should go to university, all the things you'd want as a parent. It's You don't want to project on them, but you want them to feel that you're there and you're supportive, I think. All the advice you'd want to be dishing out yes. if you were there. And I think she'd talk to people who'd lost a parent when they were young and who'd felt that on milestones. But she did say she didn't want them to feel upset every birthday or Christmas by getting another note or letter. She wanted some jokey things too. And for you, over the five years, you've got to know her as a person and her family, her children and her her husband. How have they coped? You know, for the children growing up almost with this constant sort of sense of knowing your mother has cancer must be so hard. I never really met Hugo and Eloise properly, but she talked about them so lovingly and she did some extraordinary videos with them. 
she adored Disney and the son, I think being very kind to her, did a Beauty and the Beast when she dressed up <laughs> and he was the Beast and she was Beauty. And they, they did this incredible dance routine. I remember sobbing when I saw it. I don't know why, just because it was so uplifting, but at the same time, so devastating. And you could just see the love from him that he was prepared to do it when he was sort of, must have been 12. So at quite an awkward age for a boy. And she was always very keen on their education and very proud that they'd had to do all their exams on their own. They then both went to boarding school. She was very pleased that they didn't ring her up every night after a bit, that they actually they were so busy yeah. running around that they'd apologise that they hadn't chatted to her. And that's exactly what she wanted. She wanted to feel that they could cope without her. As Dame Deborah moved to end-of-life care, she showed no signs of slowing down her campaigning. We'll have more from Alice on a remarkable life after this. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For you, having got to know her over those years... What was it like that moment when you got the text message when she told you that there wasn't long? It's very difficult because I felt very guilty of feeling upset because I felt so sad for her. But it was also slightly extraordinary 
talking to her just before she died. And I've, I've had family members, I've had my mother die, I've had a very close friend die, and I didn't actually ask them the questions that I asked her. That was the extraordinary thing. I think she was very brave and clever, really, to do an interview because we then did talk. In a way, I wish I'd talked to, to my mother, actually, just before she died, because we did have a very frank conversation. And I didn't want it to end because you knew that would be probably the last conversation. In fact, we had more texts afterwards because I almost couldn't bear it ending. I'd never interviewed someone that close to death or who knew they were that close to death and who wanted to do an interview about dying. So I did find it incredibly emotional. I wasn't really sure how to write it up either. But she was incredibly encouraging. And what were the things that you most wanted to ask her that you sort of wish you'd been able to ask, you know, your, your mother, for example? I find it really emotional thinking about it, but it was the sense of what you feel you've achieved, what, what your purpose was in life. And for her, and for everyone really, in the end, it is family and it's feeling you've done something, you've put something back. And she did both of those things. She... She was a phenomenal mother. She was an incredible wife. She was a fantastic sister. She was an adored daughter. And at the same time, she did a huge amount for cancer. So she had a really extraordinary, amazing life. And it was just chatting to her about how she felt about that, how she felt you needed to just grasp each moment. I mean, we all know it, really. It's just that we forget it in the day-to-day -day life, how important it is to actually enjoy everything rather than you know, moan about the school pickup or <laughs> about the name tapes or about the little things that you have to do the whole time. But actually, often you're doing them out of love and actually you're very lucky to be able to to share those moments with people and, and with your family and your friends. And so I think I did find it incredibly emotional, but also incredibly uplifting. She seemed to really relish those moments and, and everything that she could do with life. And what was really extraordinary is that when she announced that she didn't think she had long, she managed to raise so much money. I think that's what surprised me is when I did the interview, I was quite nervous about doing it. And then we put it in the Times and she did an Instagram post saying she was dying and then she did a final podcast. And I was amazed at the reaction and I think she was too. I think she was absolutely stunned. Just days after announcing she's receiving end-of-life care, she's been honoured and named a dame. She told a newspaper she was blown away and crying at the news. Not only did Prince William drop by for a champagne afternoon tea, presenting her with her damehood, very well deserved, her cancer research fund has now smashed the £6 million mark. Amazing. Incredible. She wasn't asking for millions. She was just asking everyone to give a little bit. And it was such a straightforward ask and simple. I had a figure in my mind of about a quarter of a million because I thought that would be enough to fund like, a couple of projects across the charities I wanted to fund. It kind of, it just, it just means so much to me. It means kind of, 
it makes me feel um, utterly loved. Over a month after being moved to end-of-life care, after being given just days to live, Dame Deborah continued to defy doctors' expectations. Just continuing to feel blessed to have another day, knowing that my time is limited, but at the same time, if I'm, if truth be told, um, I've already outlived uh, yet again um, what I was told when I was sent home from the hospital. So I think already, um, even I'm a bit surprised. And she continued to live life to the full. One rather lovely picture story to show you this morning. Dame uh, Deborah James has visited the Chelsea Flower Show to see the rose that has been named after her. Did she ever let on about sort of the dark moments? Yeah, she was very honest about the fact that she did somehow, you know, sometimes she would just howl. But she felt, especially in the last interview, she said she didn't want to waste any time because she said she could have just cried and cried and cried. But then she wouldn't have had time to do anything, either on her list or with her children or her family. And actually produce a book. So she hadn't finished the book. She managed to do that very quickly. She really did do everything in the last few weeks. So I think she knew she couldn't wallow, which is extraordinary. But I think she did want to cry because she did love life. Did she seem very different in that final interview? She seemed more vulnerable. She was very, very thin. She loved food and she ordered some sushi, but she couldn't eat it. Oh. She couldn't really eat very much and she knew she couldn't, but she still loved the smell of food. She was in the garden a lot. She loved being outside, you know, feeling the sun. She really wanted to feel the rain as well. I think she kept feeling that it was probably one last time and she wanted to enjoy it all. And actually... One of the most extraordinary things was that she was almost campaigning again on hospices. She was, she came out of hospital and, and she knew she was dying and she said they're not recognised enough and it's so difficult to set up dying at home. And she was always thinking of the next stage and what can I do and how can I help other people? And I thought that was rather astonishing because you thought by that stage you'd so involved in your final plans that you wouldn't have time to do that. Did she teach us something about how to face death? I think she was a teacher in the end, not a campaigner. I think that's her motivation, was to help everyone by showing them what to do. And I think she has taught us quite a lot about death because for me, she taught me that you should talk to people before they die, that you should have those conversations, that if you can, you should write those letters and not all of us can, and you don't always know what's going to happen. But I think that more than the campaigning, it's it's how to live your life and how to die, and that's very much what her books have been about. That it's not dying with dignity or dying, you know, with a message to the world. It's more about being with the people you care about, telling them how you feel, not being afraid of being vulnerable doing as much as you can to wrap up your life. And that's a terrible thing to say, but I do feel that as a mother, that I don't want my children to have to cope with too much. I want to feel that you've done enough so that it's the big things in life that they need to have some steer. But also, I think she did tidy up a lot of her life. She wrote 
second book. She said goodbye to a friend. She organised her funeral plans. She did it all, really, which left them then time just to think about her, which I think was rather lovely. In preparing for death, I mean, she seems to have planned out her funeral in real detail. What did she want? She knew exactly what she wanted for her funeral. She wanted everyone to wear black um, and white. She wanted it to be quite formal, which was very unlike her because she only ever wore colour. But I think she said she wanted it to be quite traditional. Mm. And she said she quite liked her children to read poems, but only if they felt up to it. She loved poetry. And she said that she wanted everyone to have a drink afterwards, which I thought was great. And she definitely wanted to be cremated. She had a thing about being lonely. She didn't want to die alone. She never wanted to be alone. She wanted to be somewhere busy and happy. So actually, she said the best thing was if they put her ashes in a kitchen drawer and forgot about them and then they'd all be rushing around the kitchen and she'd felt that she'd been involved. And I thought that was rather wonderful. I thought, actually, I totally understand that sense of, of not wanting to be left out, of of not feeling that you've been abandoned and and no one's ever going to forget in her family, but it's that sense that you're part of it, that you're still there. And she had the song, she wanted Blood Brothers, which is actually quite an emotional song, but um, that was her favourite song and she wanted that played. And the lyrics seem quite apt. Yes. Tell me it's not true. Say it's just some story. Something on the news, though it's here before me. And I think that summed it up, really. There was a sort of incredible warmth and passion for life, but also a huge sadness that she was leaving it. I suppose that's it from me. I can't believe it. That That is it from me. Um, which is a very sad thing to say, but I'm pleased that I have, you know, got to the point where I can say it. And we'll see each other again somewhere, somehow dancing. And until then, please, please, just enjoy life because it is so precious it's i can't tell you is all i want right now is more time and more life um and oh and also check your poo come on i can't i can't leave on any other word apart from check your poo dame deborah ann james died at the age of 40 she leaves behind her her husband and two children. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, columnist and interviewer at The Times, Alice Thompson. You can read Alice's interviews with Deborah James at thetimes.co.uk. And you can find all of the columns that Deborah wrote 
at thesun.co.uk and you can listen to her podcast, You, Me and the Big C, on BBC Sounds. We'll also leave a link in the description of this podcast where you can donate to the Bowel Babe Fund, which raises money for Cancer Research UK, the Royal Marsden Hospital and Bowel Cancer UK. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.